Like, if you, if you look at me physically, you just think, oh, she's got short arms, right. you know, and, and quite short arms. I don't know if you've seen a picture of me, but I've only got sort of like six inch, if that, little, little tiny arms right. with three little fingers coming, mm-hmm. coming out. So I've got that real typical phocomelia, which means seal flipper. I've only got sight in one eye, but yet the other eye still work, moves. So it doesn't, to right. look at me, there doesn't seem to be any other issues. Lisa McManus is one of the 125 formally recognised survivors of thalidomide in Australia. Much of the effects of thalidomide are within her body, invisible to passers-by. Miss McManus is blind in one eye and suffers from diabetes and severe vascular disease. She also has kidney issues, peripheral nerve damage and feels constant pain that worsens as she ages. Other survivors are missing thumbs or legs, have ear defects, heart problems and brain damage. Born to a mother who took medication containing thalidomide while in the early stages of pregnancy, the 57-year-old is living proof of a drug development gone wrong. So initially when you looked at me as a kid, I was a kid with short arms but feisty, you know, like road horses and road push bikes and learned to drive cars and did ballet dancing, all those sorts of things. Um, But it's these last few years that things are slowing down and have skin conditions that I can't tend to myself and it's not a thalidomide-related issue. It's just that I've got bad skin. Mm. But not being able to tend to it Mm. um, is a thalidomide-related issue. Welcome to the Medical Republic, I'm Felicity Nelson. The story of thalidomide is etched into the minds of every doctor and drug manufacturer. It serves as a historical warning of what can happen when you don't do things properly and you don't test drugs rigorously. 60 years or so later, thalidomide survivors are a living cohort that still have to fight to not be overlooked or forgotten. However, thalidomide survivors have secured a major win recently by getting the federal government to compensate them for the disabilities and difficulties that they've endured. Sonia Kolbacher, a reporter at the Medical Republic, has been following the story. Welcome to the show, Sonia. Thanks for having me. Finally. (laughs) We've been trying to get Sonia on the show for a very long time. Here we are. Here we are, finally. So this story is well known among doctors, but let's start from the beginning anyway, Sonia. So talk us through, we're in the 50s, what's happening with thalidomide? Yeah, so thalidomide was um, the active ingredient in tablets that were given to people to help them with headaches or um, morning sickness, nausea, that sort of thing. It was created by a German company in 1957, um, and then it was sold in Australia from about 1960, June, Mm -hmm. um, under prescription. It was withdrawn in uh, August 1962 when it became known of the effects it was having on um, babies who were being born to women who had taken the drug during sort of, you know, the early stages of pregnancy. And what were some of those effects that were seen? Um, I mean, like Lisa kind of explained, you know, people have um, either sort of shortened arms or no arms, no legs. Um, There have been issues with people's genitals internally. There are kind of different... Um, problems with people's organs, um, their heart, they have ear and eye, eye effects usually. Wow. So, I mean, we all know this story. It's it's the most shocking tale in medicine. But, I mean, that's a long time. 57 when is when the drug comes out. 62 is when the go- Australian government finally realises there's something off about it. <laughs> you think that they would notice a little bit more quickly? I mean... Given the such, you know, shocking and 
kind of apparent effects of the drug. I mean, by the time the government kind of made a move to actually have the drug withdrawn, and you have to remember there wasn't a TGA at that time, like that Mm. sort of regulation just didn't exist, that structure wasn't in place. At that time, there wasn't, you know, national bodies regulating drugs and their use and their prescriptions. By the time the government had sort of made its move, they'd been warned months and months earlier that, you know, this was having an awful effect on people. So it's now sort of 60 years on or so. What's happening now? Like, why are you talking about thalidomide again? In the budget last month, the government, the Australian government, for the very first time, allocated funds for compensation for, you know, that handful of thalidomide survivors. But you did say it was a win, and it is a win, but it has taken momentous effort by the survivors themselves who have funded their own way and knocked on plenty of doors in Parliament House and lobbied politicians for years to do something and to finally address, you know, what they've been facing for their entire life. And I guess the reason we kind of take took a bit of a deep dive into this story is because I think medically and also just in the community in general, it is recognised as this awful thing that happened. But I think it's important to kind of lay out for people, you know, well, how are they going and what do their lives look like and how has this affected them? And so... I took the time to kind of speak to a couple of survivors and hear from them just how their lives have kind of played out and how they've been affected by the disability. And they're incredibly lovely and passionate and empathetic and incredibly fierce individuals who have had to fight for that allocation of funding and had have had to really like push for someone to actually listen to them so let's talk about lisa mcmanus what's her specific story lisa is one of the most incredible people i've interviewed she's emotional and she's strong and she has not let what's happened to her stand in her way she um lives in victoria with her family and when she was born to a mother who had obviously taken thalidomide her parents made the decision when she was quite young to raise her in the same way that they did for her other siblings make sure that she could be independent and that she could fend for herself and that she was strong and she talks about you know when she was a kid learning to ride horses and motorbikes and drive cars and she's this very passionate dancer who did ballet when she was a child and it's really amazing because despite you know the impact thalidomide has had on her physically she's still done all these incredible things with her life and is now kind of fighting for other people who have survived this drug to get what they deserve and one of the things that she was saying in your story that I was reading was that thalidomide doesn't just have a single point of impact as you age its effects start to come apparent and this cohort is obviously the only group that's ever been affected by thalidomide so can you talk me through what's becoming apparent now that this group's um, quite a bit older yeah so i mean i think their um their particular needs and the support that they require is quite unique compared to um others as they age you know they age at much at a much faster rate in terms of you know the kind of breakdown of their body is at a much faster rate than say you or I would be Um, and so their needs kind of increase as they get older because of the sort of physical implications that thalidomide has had on them 
um, which obviously means that they kind of need more care and more support as they got older. So, you know, they're kind of aged now in their late 50s, early 60s. And for them to sort of be chasing after compensation or trying to get compensation, they're very much like running out of time because they need things now or they needed things yesterday. And so it's, you know, it's incredibly difficult for them. I think they're still waiting to see how that government announcement actually plays out in terms of what it would mean for them, what they can access. It is definitely a win and it will help them, but I think there's still sort of a bit of a wait to see just exactly what happens there. Mm. And one of the other things that struck me was that this group has a type of disability that not many other people have. So the services that are out there are, you know, for people who are wheelchair users or people who have a certain type of condition, but this group is so unique. Is there sort of a missing um, amount of support that really should be there that isn't there? Yeah, I mean, Lisa explained, and also um, Senator Jordan Steele-John, he's the youngest senator in Australia, and he's also the first to have a lived experience of disability. I was talking to him um, about this group because he's kind of been involved in their advocacy and pushing for, um, you know, government attention to their cause. And they both kind of explained, you know, like the NDIS is there and that was always kind of the go-to option. Like after years and years of lobbying, they kind of get stuck in this loop where their response is always, you know, oh, but the NDIS will help you. And the way they explained it is the NDIS is fantastic and it does work. If you're living in a particular area with a particular type of very well understood disability um, and people can sort of help you get access to those services. But if you are sort of outside of that construct, then it's quite actually difficult for you to get access and to get the things that you need. And one of the stories that I saw that really struck me was uh, if you're a woman and you have your period and you haven't got any arms, it becomes quite a you know logistically difficult thing to have to, have to go through. Do you want to tell us a bit about those stories that those women have? Yeah, I think that um, to hear about how thalidomide had particularly affected women was probably the most confronting um, aspect of this story and of the interviews themselves because some women for example might not have periods at all others might like you said you know they'll have a period and so they can't kind of go through the practical management that you or I would they can't change a tampon or a pad in a public bathroom then sometimes they would for example if they're at home like have to wiggle across the floor to like kind of take off and put their underwear back on and so obviously that's quite Um, limiting in a public space there was a story of one woman who when she has her period um, is at home sort of sitting on a towel for like days at a time and relying on a carer or her mother or someone else to come in and sort of like change that towel and reposition her body but there was also kind of a broader discussion around like women's I guess biological and sort of sexual identity so for example um, Lisa explained Women who have suffered thalidomide are often quite um, heavy in the bust, but that kind of presents all kinds of problems because they say, you know, often that's like the only part of our body that isn't affected and that actually functions and yet it really um, gets in the way. So, for example, there are women who um, had suffered burns when they were kind of leaning across a stovetop to try to cook for themselves. Those are the people living their lives and because we didn't have the right regulation at the time, they've had 
you know really disrupted kind of existences and yeah and I think it must be so difficult for building an identity when the world doesn't kind of want to interact with you the way that you would prefer yeah (laughs) really hard I think that you know there's this idea like I said before like people know of thalidomide but they don't necessarily know what it means in the day-to-day lives of people who have suffered and I think sharing those stories hopefully will um you know raise more awareness I know that as part of um, looking into this, I found out that the RACP has actually created this new course. It's free and accessible to everyone. <laughs> um, and it's meant to educate, you know, GPs and medical practitioners about thalidomide and the effects that it has and kind of how to provide like better patient care. So those kind of resources are out there in a very limited capacity, but hopefully that makes a difference. Yeah, of course. Uh, and there was one story that I thought we should end with uh, about Trish, who would, uh, who was a thalidomide survivor, who would do presentations at schools and had some very cute interactions with yeah. children. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So Trish Jackson, she's another survivor. She lives um, just north of Brisbane in Queensland, and she has just stopped now. But for a number of years, she would visit about fifty schools and ended up speaking to about twelve thousand children a year, which is phenomenal. Um, and her kind of aim in that was to try to change perceptions um, of people who look different and to sort of raise awareness and also just make people a bit more accepting Um, and she's had some absolutely delightful reactions with children you know she gets them to um, hold like pencils and stuff between their toes to draw because um, she uh, doesn't have arms also and she draws that way she's an amazing artist but um, she did share as you said some lovely stories there was a little boy who came up to her um, after she'd given a speech and he had, you know, like his closed little fist and uncurled his fingers and revealed these three little marbles and um, said to her, you know, I really want you to have these. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's such a sweet story. She said, he said, I really want you to have these marbles. And she was like, no, no, like they're yours. Like off you go and play Keep with your them. Marbles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he was very insistent, this kid. And he said, like, I really want you to have them. And she said, well, why is it sort of so important to you? And he said, you know, if you take the marbles, maybe you'll never forget me because I'm never going to forget you. And it's Aww. just absolutely just delightful. But she has those marbles on her desk and she said that she looks at them every day. I think it's a really nice reminder of the amazing things she's accomplished. Yeah, and I think that children are the best people to recognise extraordinary stories and extraordinary Oh, people. aren't they? You just know, delightful. Just great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, for finally joining us on the podcast no worries it's been a blast (laughs) you've been listening to the medical republic i'm felicity nelson you can contact me at felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au you can subscribe to the medical republic on itunes or spotify or any podcatcher of your choice thanks for listening